B-Cinema Talks with your hosts Tina Desiree Berg and Jason LaCory. Save your friends. You've got a way out. Well, good luck with that. So today our guest is Daniel Corey, who is a comic book writer and author. Welcome, Daniel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, the Red yeah. City, which is your new book, uh, it almost has mm-hmm. a film noir look to it. What were your mm-hmm. early influences that made you decide to go with the film noir look? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I love noir, crime uh, stories, whatnot. It, it had a lot of it to do with, like, growing up, you know, uh, in the, uh, the 80s and uh, UHF television, basically. You know, it's like you would watch the old movies that came on. You know, uh, so a lot of a lot of westerns and a lot of just black and white, you know, noir detective uh, stuff. So you know, I watched a lot of the Humphrey Bogart movies and stuff when I was a little kid. You know, I uh, you know I loved shows like uh, Magnum PI was a huge influence. You know, and um, 
I love that show. That show was a very, yeah. if you go back and look at it now, it's very, it's still like this, this very smartly written, well done show. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's almost like a John D. McDonald novel, those shows, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, what, people, people think of Magnum P.I., they think of like, you know, Tom Selleck and his charisma and his mustache, and that definitely made the show. But- <laughs> really underneath all of that, in addition to it, he, he just really was icing on the cake. It was like a very well-constructed, well-put-together show. Um, and there was something about, like, you know, that show really expressed it well, and the old black and white shows really, um, uh, movies really expressed it well, but there was a, it was just this thing in noir. It was like, you know, a country had been through a depression, we had been through a war. There was a, a lot of kind of fear, you know, and that was the thing with Noir. It was dark, and you have this character that, you know, the detectives in these stories, they always have random people popping out of the dark and beating them up, and they don't know why, and everything just seems so random until they finally get to the heart of it and are able to untangle the web. You know, it's like a really different kind of mystery story than, you know, you're, say you're just got a uh, run-of-the-mill, you know, murder mystery, co- cozy murder mystery, you know? Um, you know, the cozy murder mysteries with, you know, a bunch of people in a house, in a garden, somebody's dead. One of them did it. Was it the butler? Da, da, da. You know, that was a very, you know, different kind of storytelling. And then, you know, you had like people like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler with their novels and their novels being, um, you know, adapted. It was a very different kind mm-hmm. of story, uh, the, the crime story. I think, um, you know, it was like Red Harvest really kind of mm-hmm. set the standard, that, that novel. Um, where it was um, not a murder mystery. It was a crime story, and it was about crime. Right. And, uh, you know, you had a character, he's like, he's knocked out, he wakes up, somebody's dead in the room, somebody else is coming after him, trying to kill him. It was really just about a metaphor of life and how tough life is, you know, how tough life was in the middle of the century with depression. And, and that really kind of, like, captured my attention. Also, when I got a little older, I really got into reading, like, plays of Arthur Miller, which he dealt a lot with, you know. You know, there's an underlying kind of just human need and ache and kind of a, a spiritual awareness, really, at the underbelly of those types of stories that I really respond to. And then, you know, also it's just really entertaining, you know, complex yeah. stories and mysteries <laughs> and revelations and, you know, crooked politicians and Timothy Towels and all that, you know, good stuff. Exactly. Yeah, like the mysteries that came before. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, well, I was, was going to say, like, the mysteries that came before, like, you never have Perot getting jumped by thugs in a men's room for no reason. You know, right. like, yeah, I, mean, no, I mean, you're right. It's just, they, they, it added an entertainment element with Moriarty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was yep. just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so that brings us to, right. yeah, you took it, you, uh, you took um, Sherlock Holmes with, with a kind of different spin. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like, what yeah, what so inspired you to do Moriarty? Well, um, I had been working for a while. This is, so back in like 2007 or so, it's when I linked up with Anthony Diacidue, who's an artist that I've worked with for many years now. And um, you know, we did our first comic together that I, I, I published. I formed my own little company called Danger Cat. And we, we did a graphic novel called Profit, which was kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a spaghetti, a supernatural spaghetti western 
you know, it was like mm-hmm. Western and noir and horror kind of, you know, mashed up. And, you know, when we finished that, I was thinking, well, what's our next project going to be? And I was think I was really thinking that I wanted to go and I really wanted to get one of the larger publishers to put out the next book because I really wanted to push to get, you know, distribution, get the work out there. And I came upon the idea to do a Moriarty story. Um, you know, it's a love Sherlock Holmes. And, um, you know, he fits also though, like, you know, it's like he does kind of fit a little more in traditional mold of traditional mystery story, but they weren't like cozy murder mysteries either though. You know, that these were, mm-hmm. these were really complex and strange mystery stories, you know, that would like somebody delivers a hat to him. Oh, I see a spot of mustard on here. Somebody got murdered at, at this particular address, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, that he, he could leak to all these conclusions. Yeah. And it was really about, Sherlock Holmes is about a, a kind of an interconnectedness of all things, really. Um, you know, so that's what really always held my fan, uh, fancy since I was a kid. The first time I, I saw a Basil Rathbone movie, and then I started reading mm. the stories, you know, that, that really grew yeah. me up. Uh, so I wanted, you know, I thought, oh, I'll do something like that, but I didn't want to do a Sherlock Holmes story because, you know, there have been too many of those. And I was like, nobody's done a comic book about Professor Moriarty. You know, I was, th- I was thinking mm. about the Sherlock Holmes world, and I was thinking about Professor Moriarty. What a great character! Wait a minute, nobody's done a comic book. I went and researched it. There's not, there's not been a comic book that focused on Professor Moriarty as the lead character. He had been a character like in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He probably appeared in however many Sherlock Holmes comic books that had been made at some point, but there was never a Moriarty leading man title character comic book. And you know, so Anthony and I got to work on that. And at first he was a little hesitant because he's like, I don't know if I'm good at historical stuff. I might just think of it as a horror movie, Anthony. And the fog rolling through the streets and the men in the cloaks. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he got into it, you know. But um, but we took um, Professor Moriarty and kind of made him into that hard-boiled kind of hero. You know, we kind of made him kind of a Philip Marlowe type guy. You know, he's, uh, you know, it's in the aftermath of Sherlock Holmes is gone. You know, he's dead. And, um Moriarty's lost everything, and he's kind of just working the streets as his private eye, you know. Right, uh, So right. we kind of put him in that position of the pulp hero, anti-hero that I love, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it was a matter of a couple of years of shopping that around, going to conventions and talking to all the editors, meeting everybody. Everybody turned it down until, you know, the last mm. company left was Image Comics, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I don't know if I want to go to them. They're, they're so big. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I went through the website submission process and, and snail mailed it in and miraculously <laughs> it, it all came together and worked out. Eric, yeah. Eric Stevenson responded nice. within a couple of weeks. Um, you know, that's the history. We came out, the first issue came out in May, um, uh, 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you hadn't been turned down by other companies, you'd have missed your big, you know, your big target. Big break. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you never would have yeah, tried them otherwise. Right, yeah, I know that was it. Was my last? It was my last resort because I thought they, I was just really sure they'd say no and yeah. <laughs> so, that's that's awesome. a great twist. So it is a great yeah. twist. Um, you also debuted a VR version of Moriarty at WonderCon. So what? Talk to mm-hmm. us about this. What is a VR version of a comic book? How does that work? Is it an app? Is it a? Um, does it have a 3D look to it? Tell us a little bit about the project. Yeah. Um, yeah. What it is. Uh, if nobody had done, I, I, was, I was researching this again. I was like, I, I want to get involved in augmented reality VR. You know, this is probably about four years ago when people were just starting to talk about Oculus Rift and it was like VR was coming mm-hmm. back. 
you know, people yeah. wanted it to be a thing in the 90s, but the hardware and everything was too bulky and, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't quite working out. And then, you know, all through the early 2000s and whatnot, you know, it, everybody was silent on VR. But then it was like in the early teens, you know, 2010, 2011 or whatever, people started talking about Oculus Rift. And mm-hmm. it was suddenly becoming, you know, becoming real again. And I was working on another title, my new title that's going to be coming out later this year um, called Bloodworth. Um, Bloodworth is about an FBI agent. She can enter people's memories to solve crimes, you know. Mm. So that's kind of a VR experience. So I was writing a a crime story about VR, and I thought, oh, there's got to be a way to combine VR and comics, right? Because I was Mm -hmm. thinking, I want to just, like, grab the artwork off the page and just put it up into the room around me and just be inside the comic book and maybe it's something we can do. So I started researching augmented reality and VR and actually get a little augmented reality project with Bloodworth first where you could like use your smartphone with the Blipper app and scan mm. the cover of Bloodworth and like 3D content would come up. You could watch a trailer. You could read the opening pages of the comic and all these nice things. But um, I was like, all right, I want to do more. I want. I actually want to do a VR comic book. I don't know what that is exactly, but I, I spent again a couple of years. I, I walked around. I went to all these VR conventions, and I, and this was a new thing because, like, at comic book conventions, comic book companies are used to comic book creators coming up and pitching to them. But at video game conferences like GDC, VRLA, what have you, um, people aren't used to. Com- I was the only comic book creator going around saying, "Hey, I have a comic book. Do you want to adapt it?" You know, I have these, mm-hmm. solid, you know, I have these solid pitches, these things that are actually published and distributed worldwide, and you can make something out. And nobody, had, nobody, nobody was doing that. Right. You know? So that was kind of worked to my advantage, you know. And I, um, I met this company called Transmedia Entertainment. These guys are based in Sydney, Australia. I met them at VRLA. Um, it was beginning of 2016, and they were really interested immediately. Like they caught the vision. Hmm. You know, I talked to a lot of companies, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. Because VR comic book, I don't know. What that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, these guys were like, "Gosh, we don't know what it is either." But let's, let's think about it. You know, mm-hmm. and we did a conference call, and within two weeks, they they had um, generated um, like a, a tech demo for a card for a cardboard. You know, for Google Cardboard. So like I did mm-hmm. WonderCon 2016. So with my smartphone in a cardboard VR viewer, you could look at the first what was the first couple pages, the Moriarty Endgame which was a short story that Anthony and I did. And right. um, so we were the only people with VR at 2016 WonderCon. And like, and it was just the Google Cardboard demo, but people were like going nuts. This is amazing. This is so cool. Like, nobody had seen VR yeah. before, you know? Um, and then it was the next year in 2017, like the guys had finished the full product. So we launched, um, I think it was April 16th, I think maybe, of 2017. We launched on the Steam store. So... Moriarty Endgame VR became available on the Steam store for Oculus and Vive. And um, the guys came up from Sydney to exhibit at WonderCon. And they, and they set up with their, um, their, um, their Vive headset. And we were giving people a two-minute demo of the VR. And again, it was just like the, the, the previous experience was just times 100 because, again, nobody had seen VR. And this was like, it was on the Vive, which is the best, you know, headset available where... You know, it's like mm-hmm. wrap around, it's full 360, it's immersive, and people were going nuts and loving it. And just to describe mm. what the experience is, because it took a long time for us to figure out what a VR comic was. So what, what they did was, the guys from Transmedia, they, they took um, 
they, they looked at the, the pages for Moriarty Endgame, a short story that Anthony and I did. The story is, uh, takes place in a speculative future where um, Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes uh, command mechanical armies and they have a big world war. Um, mm. So um, it was pretty cool for VR. But um, what they did was they, they took a look at the pages and they recreated the environments in 3D. And then they took the actual panel art from the comics and just kind of lifted it off the digital page and placed it into the 3D environment. So you have the comic book frame, the people, you know, their heads, the talking heads, whatever, within the frame and the word bubbles. So you can mm. kind of like be in the environment and see the comic art, but then there's also soundtrack music. There's um, actors reading and voiceover. So you can read the bubbles or oh, you can cool. listen to the voiceover. There's like ambient animation, like smoke and stuff and sound effects. And, um, you know, so you just get this kind of, just, it's just a sensory experience of being inside a comic book page. Um, you know, so um, I could say we had the first, VR comic book. I'm not really sure if we did. We had one of the first, but like our, our, our particular format we did, the uniqueness of it was the first of its kind. So I was happy about that. And it's, it's available now. Moriarty uh, in-game VR is available for Steam, on the Steam store for Oculus and Vive. On the Steam, okay. That is so cool. So do you think this is going to be a big format going forward? Is this going to be a new thing that's going to take up um, take up Steam and, and just be a thing that takes over the comic book industry? I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. I, um, you know, this might just be a link in the chain of what's to come. You know, yeah. as far as realizing gotcha. comics in 360-degree, um, you know, uh, 3D environments, there, there's, there, right. there, there's more to come, I think, and we still have to figure it out. You know, so mm -hmm. we, um, you know, me and the transmedia guys are, have been shopping the format to different publishers and stuff to try to, you know, use this as a marketing tool. So we'll see how it takes off and how we do. Yeah, certainly. But it seems like a great use of virtual reality because oftentimes I've wondered, you know, you see the demonstrations of uh, small film clips or whatever that they've had at Comic-Con, and it's so cool. But then you're like, well, what are the actual applications that are going to come from this? And it seems like comic mm -hmm. books is a natural sort of trend. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I feel like the format that we, we have done, that we're doing is even just a, it's like an ancillary. I think I would, what I would like to do eventually is like people buy the print comic and they read the print comic and then there's a, a code in the back of the comic here. Download mm. Now you can be right, inside right. the virtual reality version of this book you just read. So I think, you know, it really, it still complements the traditional reading experience. It's like you've read it, now experience it, live inside of it, you know? Um, I yeah. think that's we're really kind of selling with this. Um, and, you know, there's, there's more to come, though. Like I said, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, what if the VR version is the first entry in, you know? We'll, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll be building these kind of stories for people to view in VR the first time, and then maybe we'll adapt it into a book later, you know? There's mm -hmm. a lot of possibilities. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you see a, a benefit to writing the VR version differently? Like, like to approach it from the very beginning as a VR, would you write it differently than you would if you were approaching it as a book mm. and then converting it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it all depends on what the project needs to be. And like, I mean, really what it comes down to is how much budget do we have? What do we want to do? You know? So, right. you know, the possibility of doing branching storylines and stuff like that, you know, and, and, you know, kind of gamifying the experience would be uh, something that, that would be a lot of, of a lot of value, you know, because then you'd mm -hmm. actually be, 
entering into the pages of the comic and then, but like actually controlling the narrative, you know, and as the, all that technology comes along, you know, uh, there's going to be more and more you can do. Um, but yeah, it all depends yeah. on, on budgets and what, what we can do. You know, there's a lot more we'd like to do with what we have to gamify it some more and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if we, <laughs> it depends on what comes along because we can, it's updatable, you know, what we have. So, so we'll see, but yeah, you know, it, it, it just depends on what format you want to do. Right now what we're doing is basically experience and enjoy um, a comic book, uh, what, what was a traditional format in VR. And that's what we're going for at the moment. And, but there's a lot, there's a lot more reach you can have. It just depends on budget. Right. Design. With um, comics, it seems like no matter how, how far out they expand, you know, the, there are the web comics and the digital and photo and everything else, that's the traditional print comics. Whereas other books that's and true. stuff, are, the Kindle right. and, and whatever, um, what do you yeah. think makes, you know, the print comic hold on so much better than other media? Oh man, that's a, a multifaceted discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a good question. It's a good question. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, comic books just they hold sway and just the popular imagination, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And the thing is, is, like your average people don't, you know, buy comics as much. It's a very niche product, a comic book. There's only like you know so many comic books. There's only a couple thousand, and they're available. A little bit at Barnes and Noble, we have graphic novels and stuff there. But you know, it's yeah. I mean, you have to know where to go to get them. Yeah, but I don't know when people when a movie or a TV show comes out that is based on a comic book, everybody wants to watch. Oh, it's based on a graphic novel. It's based on a comic. It must be cool. I want to try it out. You know. So there's right. this thing still, even if the you know people aren't going out and, and and buying the books in the great numbers like they would a Stephen King novel or something. It still is like. You know, it's still the fact that it's proven in that medium is uh, a big deal to everybody. You know, so you know, I mean, yeah, and you do see other, you know, like prose novels. You know, I mean, like the Barnes and Noble's the only national chain left bookstore, right? And they're still they're they're selling less and less books. You know, they're selling more toys and yeah. stuff now, right? So. That industry, though, I mean, you know, that public, that the end of that publishing industry, I mean, it's, I, I guess it's still doing well. It's, I can't say it's going into failure. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, but yeah, it's just, it, there's something about the, the, the power of the comics and the printed page. Also, you know, just the people who are comic book fans, you know, there's a thing about buying the printed product. It's like you're buying, you know, a print of some artwork that you like, you know. It's just bound yeah. together in book form, you know, because it, it has a visual aspect to it, you know. And, like, for, yeah. the, for the people that are kind of doubters, that are down on comics, all that kitty stuff, you shouldn't read it, whatever. Like, listen, think about it. What's a comic book? It's visual. It's dialogue. It's story. And what's a TV show? <laughs> you know, it's visual. Right. It's dialogue. It's story. But it has, it has movement, you know. Everybody watches TV. Everybody, especially these days, Netflix and all the, sh- I mean, TV's in its golden age right now. So it seems like a lot of these people that are down on comics are, are still, you know, watching Lost in Space on Netflix. They really should shut up. <laughs> you know, right. It's like it's the same thing. You know, people, you know, so those kind of doubters, you know, would need to see that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, comics offer a lot, offer a lot. It's just a different experience than a prose novel because it offers that visual experience and you have it, 
you have one person that's a writer, you have one person that's the, that's the artist, and there's a different artist for every type of title. So that means it's almost like having a different cinematographer, you know, a different direction, a yeah. different director for each book. So you go get this book because you like this writer. You go get this book because you like this artist. Or this one has two, two uh, you know, a creative teams uh, that you like on, on this one. So there's an excitement to the visual aspect of it. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. It just it has staying power. I mean, you know, the, the industry, you know, struggles, you know, making the numbers a lot. But, like, you have the certain companies like Marvel and DC are owned by, you know, um, Marvel's by Disney, Warner Brothers owns DC. Yeah. They've got, some, they've got some money to blow, so they could, like, actually put out these books at a loss as marketing for their movies, you know, so right, right. it'll survive at least that way. But then, you know, then you get into, um, you know, the independent publishers will have problems. But then a lot of these independent publishers are being funded by, you know, film studios and stuff like that now. So, yeah. Why the VR thing might be so interesting because I could see that growing as a trend and uh, sort of creating a new audience for comic books. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's just, uh, there's a, a need for, there's still a need for people to catch on to VR. You know, it's still, and a lot of money is put in yeah. by these companies to, to make it appeal, to make it relevant to people. And I think people really yeah. want to enjoy it, understand yeah. it. But at this point, it's, it's a little hard because, like, <clears throat> a lot of the stuff is, equipment is still kind of bulky and expensive. Things should come down in price. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get an Oculus at um, Best Buy. Uh, three or four hundred, I think. Um, yeah. You know. I think the challenge, though, is that there's just not a lot of content. So people are people would buy the headsets, I think, for three or four hundred dollars if there was a legitimate amount of content out there um, for them to to see and use with the with the headsets. Which is why I think Samsung has gotten into the game of, of financing productions um, for mm -hmm. their headsets. They need they need to have the content out there. And I just you know I think it's a very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting thing to, to see comic books in that format. I think it's got, I think it's got some legs to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, and you, you do see like some of these studios, uh, you know, coming up. You know, they're converting some of these big titles into VR, like Doom VR. Right, right, right. Last year, my buddy, my buddy Mark Diaz was like a, a huge, uh, you know, uh, you know, contributor to that. Um, you know, in writing and creating that mm -hmm. game and that's like a really big deal so now we got doom in vr and at yeah. some point you know all these like huge titles were, i think going to be adopted into, into vr you know like fallout titles yeah and stuff like that now so you know there's going to be you know it'll be it'll they're working on standardizing vr in people's minds you know with these brands mm -hmm. i think uh, i think that will help you know mm -hmm. and um, probably the new vive is coming out the vive pro you know so that the original vive now is is, is cheaper you know, and then there's the PlayStation VR, and those have shipped. I mean, I, what I've heard is that there's been a million of those shipped. You know, so if you're creating really? PlayStation okay. that, yeah. Wow. So uh, you know, more than I a, thought. Uh, you know, I don't know how many. I don't know how many games are um, available, but they, they've got a good number of games. They they wouldn't ship the headset mm. unless they had a, a fairly decent. You know, they got they had the Batman title first. That was pretty. That was pretty yeah. significant. Yeah, and I think you're right. It seems the games are sort of taking over the format more so than the idea of, you know, at first they were floating this idea of having interactive webisodes, so it was more of a film format, but it makes more mm -hmm. sense to me that the games would take um, pull position on, on the VR. So we'll see what happens, Definitely. though. It's still a nascent yeah. industry. 
So why comic books, Daniel? I mean, as a mm-hmm. writer, you could really choose any format uh, mm-hmm. for your medium, but you chose comic books. What, what was the reason behind that? Well, um, you know, as I was kind of coming, um, coming up as a writer, in, in my early 20s, I was working with a um, theater group, and I was writing plays first, you know. And um, I mentor at that group, um, Ken Yulo, and you know, I started writing two-person scenes, and I started writing, you know, full-length stage plays, and he's like, start writing movies, you know, write, write novels, novellas. You know, you can just, if you if you if you prove the material in this format, you know, if you write, you, you own a play, you own a novel. You know, if you can own these things and then you can sell them on as movies, then that's how you can, you know, establish independence and some financial success and whatnot. Um, so he kind of got me. He never used the, the term trained media, but he really kind of got me thinking in a trained media way, you know. And. Uh, it was about 2005, 2006 when uh, Batman Begins came out, you know, and then it was just a couple years after that, that. I mean, it wasn't too long after that that they started talking about Iron Man, you know, being coming out from Marvel Studios. And that was about the time I started thinking about comics. Right? I started thinking really seriously about, about comic books um, as a way of just proving material. And it felt like a good idea. You know, I had, uh, as a kid, the first graphic novel, like serious graphic novel I'd read was Dark Knight Returns. That really got me into understanding that comics can be important and have something to say about society and have an effect on people's lives, you know, all the press that book got. You know, so I kind of went back to that thinking, yeah, you know, maybe I should do something like that. Do, do comics. It seems to be, really, you know, they're getting adapted now into these good films, but it's also... You know, like I, well, what I was saying before, it's something that is really important to people. It really is a touchstone for people, a comic book, a graphic novel. So I, I explored the medium and, you know, got back in and, and started reading everything again and started going to shows. And, you know, that's that's basically how I got in. And, uh, you know, met Anthony, we did Profit, then we did Moriarty. The rest was history. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just like I tapped into this, this the idea of comic books hold sway. They're important, and mm-hmm. they're really starting to come forward in culture. So that's that's really why mm-hmm. I went into comics. I mean, mm-hmm. comics are yeah. yeah. Comics, comics finally have the respect now that we all gave them when we were kids. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, the white yeah, public is really appreciates it more. Yeah. Also, yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing that worked, the other thing that worked out well for me was the fact that I picked the Sherlock Holmes related thing. That and, you know, yeah. and I think Eric Stevenson saw that that the, the Sherlock craze blew up around like 2010, 2011. You know, with the Benedict Cumberbatch show, and then the Robert Downey Jr. movies, and then the Johnny Lee Miller show, and um, you know, and it's still going, it's still going. The mm-hmm. Sherlock craze. So I, I we we kind of hit on all cylinders, getting into comics, and, and then getting into the Sherlock world. Everything worked really nicely. I was I was very very happy, and uh, you know. Again, like I said, nobody had done a Moriarty comic before, and uh, just to frame that in perspective, there's like there's been like a hundred years of Sherlock Holmes, uh, more than a hundred years of Sherlock Holmes. Nobody had done a Moriarty comic. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that is crazy. So, when you're developing a new comic book series, what is what is your method? Do you loosely script the storyline, or and then go find an artist, or do you work with the artist at the same time on developing characters as you're doing the storyline? How does that um, play out in development? Oh, I, I tightly script everything. Um, you know, it, I mean, it takes a long time to, you know, figure out what I'm going to do to flesh out the world. 
characters. I write the script like almost like a movie script, you know. Okay. Um, but it's like I divide everything up to pages and panels. I'm very descriptive about everything. So the story is set in place. Like I have the script done when I go look for the artist. So, mm. um, so I'm very decided upon, you know, a, a lot of things. Um, but you know, and the artist comes along, and then they show me characters. Like I describe to them how I want the characters to look. But then I now we get something back that's a little better than what I said because they have it's, there's another human being, creative human being involved that contributes something. You know, mm-hmm. that looks better than I thought. And then they. They draw the pages and they, they, they do it according to my direction, but then sometimes they have to tweak the camera angle or combine a panel here, da, 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 you know. So it ends up being collaborative. It ends up being better, you know, from the collaboration, you know. So these guys like, mm-hmm. like Anthony that I work with and Chris Finolio, who I've been working with for a few years now, and uh, Dave Lanford, who I've been working with all along, these guys really bring their game, you know. They, they're excellent artists and, and just like, you know, creative forces of nature. So working with them and the collaboration that comes together it ends up being a, a really terrific and interesting product, you know. But, but from the time before I meet them, though, I do have everything very set down how I want it, um, you know. So I, I don't do the loose scripting or or anything like that. Okay. But um, you know, everything everything's in flux up until you go to print, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So, what is your favorite yeah, been... B movie of all time? My favorite B movie. Um, yeah, oh, we gotta gosh, know. You know <laughs> Of all time. <laughs> of all time. Of all time. Or your, to- Man, I wish, or your hmm. top five, if, if you can't narrow it down. Oh, gosh, I hadn't even thought about it at all. But um, let's see here. Okay, you know, when I was a little kid, this movie called Them, about the giant ants. I was- <laughs> threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation and the beast shall reign over the earth yes the earth the skies above and the seas below infested by swarms of nightmare creatures crueler deadlier than the armored giants of prehistoric eras here is a wild headlong flight into terror as the desert erupts with the grim battle for survival here is a fear frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth, where human courage challenges the brute force, the slashing jaws, the poison fangs that guard the subterranean nest, where the beast spawns its terrible progeny. To all units, to all units, condition red, 
Drain 267 is the target area. Repeat, condition red. Drain 267 is the target area. Yes. <laughs> so, Have you seen my giant was... ant movie? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen your giant ant movie yet. Send it Tina. over. No, you haven't. Send it over. Really? No, I'm, I'm so upset yeah. about that, too. You don't know. Gentlemen, we're on a collision course with a hailstorm of meteors. than life. Forget it, Cold Red! Everybody evacuate now! There's a queen? Yes, there's a queen. She's in the main exhaust tunnel. This queen is full of eggs. If you lose her, she'll go somewhere else and lay those eggs. Thousands of them. At 0700 this morning, the Navy was deployed to repel a hostile invasion. At 0800, they failed. Gentlemen, this is not a drill. I can fly that chopper. Get ready for Giants. Life is gonna be a picnic. This is what happens when you leave food out. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I did a giant ant movie in early 2000s. It's, you know, it's oh, funny because wow. the CGI, if you look at it now, you're like, oh, my God, because, you know, this was like 2001. Mm-hmm. But back then, that yeah. was like cutting edge CGI. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the oh. things that gets me about CGI is, like, you know, Jurassic Park came out in 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and since 95, nobody's really done CG that much better. Yeah. It's, right. gone, yeah. it's gone downhill. It's gone a little sideways. It's, you know, independents <laughs> have gotten better. Uh, motion captures made it easier. Yeah. But, you know, you see the dinosaurs in that and you see the dinosaurs in the new movie and you're like, okay, they, they, it's not better. They got it right, you know. Too. They really did get it right to, uh, in that first movie. Right. Amazing. Yeah, they got it right 22 years ago. Now what are we going to do? We're going to wait for some new technology. But that was you know, so expensive a... is the point. Like, no independent could touch that CGI in the 90s. No way. Um, no, yeah. Just no, and that's and that's the thing. It's like now independents are closer, but but the problem with the movie about giant ants is yeah. people know what ants look like. They, <laughs> you, you know, you see a dinosaur on screen, you're like, oh, because you've never seen it with the skin on it. You don't know if it's wrong. Fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> We've never seen it with skin on. <laughs> that's true. You've never seen it with the skin on. But I remember them when I was a kid. 
I'm sitting there watching that movie, and my dad comes in. He's like, oh, this is a classic. And that was like the first time that I was watching a monster movie, and and my dad validated what a, you know, good movie it was. Instead of walking in and being like, what's this chunk? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Thinking about, like, okay, so again, growing up in the 80s, okay, so there were the really low-budget B-movies, but then there were some really big-budget ones, too, right? Okay, so I'll, yeah. I'll go with low-budget first. Like, remember all those ninja movies? There was one in particular called Re- Revenge of the Ninja. Yeah, yeah. That was an... Oh my gosh, you know, they put that on Netflix a few years ago and I watched it again. I hadn't seen it since I was a little kid. And that movie was, it's transcendent. Cause yeah, it's, it is. It's almost like watching a, it's really like watching a Will Ferrell movie or something. It's like, it's so consistently funny. And, and when it's trying to be cool and all this, you know, like I was a kid, right? like, ninjas jumping over helicopters or whatever the heck they were doing. You know, this is awesome. This is cool. And it was like way too violent for me though. But, you know, I watched the other thing. What are you going to do? But, um, it was like way too violent, but um, you know that movie is so funny. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. It's just, it is um, funny. So Kasugi, the great ninja um, actor of the '80s, you know, was the star in that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that was a great one. And then um, you know, big budget B movies like RoboCop is the greatest yeah. B movie probably ever made. You know. <laughs> yeah. I think. You know, it, it's intentionally done with this campy B movie style. Like you scumbags are coming downtown. You know what I mean? The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. All Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot! every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence. You're going to have to kill it. Get in a cop, for God's sake! RoboCop, the future of law enforcement. You know what I mean? You know? Right, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, no, I love the guy that. out the window in the beginning and all that sort of thing. So, <laughs> RoboCop is is. Uh, I mean, I, I've watched that movie so many times. I I, I love RoboCop. Um, so, so yeah, there you go. That, you, was, uh, yeah, that was a medium budget one, probably. You know, that was a medium budget one. Have you seen uh, Dale and Tucker versus Evil? No, no, I haven't. Oh um, my god, is, it's is so Jones in that? So, um, my friend Doug Jones is in that. It's a this place is so creepy. Have you ever seen anything like that in your life? Just your average college girl. Why don't you go over there and talk to her? Talk to her? You girls, uh, going camping? <laughs> Did you see the way those guys 
looked. We are in hillbilly country now, boys. Squeal like oh, this. Yeah. Oh my God. I cannot believe that I am standing in my own vacation home. Do you guys want to hear a scary story? Chuck, no, man. This story happened right in these very woods. It was 20 years ago today. Who wants to go skinny dipping? I do. <laughs> what is that all about? We got your friend! They got Allison! Oh. Hey! Where the hell are they going? Better come look at this. It's just a cabin. It doesn't mean they're psycho killers. Then why don't you go in there and talk to them? Maybe I will. I said maybe. Saw your friend out there. He must be allergic to bees or something because he was running like a bat out of hell. Run! Run for your life! Kill them, man. They left his body here as a message. He's making her dig her own grave. It's not work for a pretty girl like you. I grew up on a farm. It's either help out or get out. They're gonna kill her. It's us against them. Where did you come from? It's a goddamn suicide pact. These kids are coming out here and they're killing themselves all over the woods. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. Oh my god! Go to the police. It's a good idea. Everyone's doing some chores around the house when kids started killing themselves all over my property. Well, that's what happened, Tucker. Ah! He's gonna walk it off. How's he even walking right now? What the hell is wrong with you kids? What is the matter with us? I've never stood so close to pure evil before. I got 10 to 12 beers. They're on ice right now, man. They're yours. Uh, guys? Maybe we should help him. Ah! You've gone hillbilly on me, Allison. You're crazy. Time to die, freak. Maybe. It's a, it's a newer B movie. It's, I think maybe five right. years old. But I swear to God, I have watched this film like 10 times, and it slays oh, me every wow. time. It's yeah. so funny. Yeah, it makes yeah, fun of every like Friday the Thirteenth, like every like low budget horror film ever that came out in the nineties and eighties. It sort of pokes mm -hmm. fun at in a way that just works really well. It's uh, <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long funny. time. I just you know I rewatched it with my niece a couple of weeks back, um, and she thought it was hysterical. So and I was just watching it with her. We were both laughing our asses off, and it's just a funny movie. Have we got we we we've mentioned Bloodworth, right? Yeah. Um, what made you go with a female hero for that? Well, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to try something different, you know. I wanted to enter a different skin, <laughs> you know. I mean, I had been I had done a lot of dour guys, you know, like, like Prophet Moriarty. Um, you know, we did Red City. The hero in that was um, a lot more kind of perky and smart smart-ass kind of guy, you know, so that one was a little different, but I'm like, I want to do a hard-boiled hero, but I just want, I want to write a female character, you know, I, um, it just, it was kind of freeing in a way to just pick up and do something completely different, and um, it just, like, artistically felt really good to me to do that, you know, mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, it draws a lot of attention because it's, a, you know, it's a, a female um, hero, um, and that, that wasn't my, that wasn't my intention was, you know, to, to just to do something that was, uh, I think people are going to like this, so I'm going to do it. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't my intention. I really just wanted to, to try that 
and just kind of play a different sort of role, you know. So, um, and enjoy the, you know, I enjoy uh, writing her immensely. Um, I have, you know, a handful of other projects kind of in the hopper that I'd like to do, and they're all female protagonists, you know. Nice. What other, so what are you, some of the other ones you have in the hopper? Can you discuss them? Um, well, there's one that I have that's actually more horror than anything else I've done. Um, cool. So I'm hoping to get that done. And that has to do with an FBI profiler and serial killers. But, it, um, you know, it also deals with demon possession. So it's basically... So it's about like a profile that profiler that is chasing this cult of demon possessed serial killers. Ooh. You know, and there's she meets up a, with a, a supernatural character that has supernatural powers, and they they go after this cult together. Um, so that's something that I'm I'm working on. That I would uh, I'm I mean I've I've written the script for it. It's just you know sitting around waiting for me to be able to afford to have an artist to draw it. And it's a little more it's a little more esoteric than my other stuff. You know, so it's kind of more of a passion project. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because it's like the pitch is basically, what if Clarice met Spawn? You know, so it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Once you read it, it makes it's a weird pitch. But once you read it, it's like, oh, it makes sense. It's kind of you know, it's, it's got action and violence, and it's uh, you know, FBI. It makes sense when you read it. So, anyways, it's a, yeah, that one's a little more strange, and it's a little more of a passion project. So, you know, I have to kind of wait for things to come together, money wise, and. And, and you know, mm-hmm. find the right artist and all that for that to happen. And you know, I probably would just have to publish that one myself. I don't know if anybody's gonna want to do it. <laughs> but, it uh, sounds interesting. Yeah, thanks. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the main one. Um, there's some others, but like they're not like far enough along, or um, just uh, I'm not sure about them, so I don't want I don't want to talk about them yet. But, uh, okay, that one that's fair. The most developed one, yeah. Have you ever thought about yeah. t- taking any of your comic book uh, properties, your scripts, and turning them into films or, or uh, web series? Is that something that's on your radar? Oh, constantly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we haven't. Uh, yeah, we haven't really gone the web series route with them, but um, you know, between like, especially, I mean, like my four main pro- comics that I have: the Prophet, Moriarty, Red City, Bloodworth. Those four main properties have gone through a lot of hands and uh, into a lot of offices. You know, I mean, with mm-hmm. Profit, we um, we announced, we, you know, we got optioned in 2013. Um, my friend James Cotton was working with the company, and um, you know, so we, we did an option. Um, but the you know the, that that company isn't exist in that form anymore. But James and I are still working on Profit and working on mm-hmm. getting the movie up on Profit. So you know, we're hoping that that will cool. happen sometime. Uh, you know, but then. With Moriarty, I mean, I've, I've sat across the desk from some really major, major executives and producers, you know, um, and it's all of them with Red City, Bloodworth, um, and Moriarty. I mean, uh, I don't want to drop names um, because, you know, things are, you know, NDA, I guess, you know, things could be in process yeah. still with these people. But um, I sat across the desk from some really major, like, executives, producers, and even one really famous athlete who has a production company, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who loved Bloodworth, you know, uh, you know, so, but it's, it's just an ongoing thing, you know, people want to talk about it and think about it until they're ready to, to, to bite down and make it happen. But, you know, and, you know, all of them, 
But the discussion with all of them, all these properties originally was feature film. Now it's shifting mm -hmm. to television, except for profit, profit, we're still yeah. talking feature film, but Moriarty, Red City, and Bloodworth, if everything's going to television these days. Yeah. So that's, that's the discussion on those properties is now what, what would these look like for TV? How, how can you do these for TV? Because there's just so much need for content, whereas the, the window for feature films is really shrinking, you know. Disney oh, owns yeah. everybody now. So everything's a Disney movie it's that costs $300 million. You know, you have to have a $300 million Disney movie at Star Wars or Marvel or you can't get a movie made. It's, mm -hmm. it's getting really hard to get a film made. But TV yep. is like there are so many channels and networks that are just aching for content. So that's that's where everybody's head's going now. That's fine with me. Right. So, um, oh, in, in, today's, in today's climate, writing for women, you know, writing a female mm -hmm. character, do, I, I know it's challenging, but do you find it like, are you, are you, you know, concerned about it at all? Have you, has the feedback mostly been positive? Um, because like right now, it's like all eyes are on female characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Do, do you find it is, that, that it's a little bit of like a, a troubled water to get into? Because a lot of my leads wind up being women too, and I think it's just because mm -hmm. um, from a perspective of growing up, you know, with older shows, Mm -hmm. If you want to add some interest, you, you turn the, you know, the dynamic on its head. Yeah. And you have a guy in trouble being rescued by a woman. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, as a woman, I think there's a difference. I mean, you can be a sexy, strong woman and it doesn't have to be sexist. So I think, um, I think there's a huge market for strong, sexy women where the leads are both of those things and they're not, they're not, um, being treated as just a sex symbol. They're strong women. And that doesn't mean mm -hmm. you can't be sexy at the same time. That's as, at least how I mm -hmm. see it as a woman. But like with, as, as a filmmaker, yeah. if, I, if I write a character who's a, who's a female lead, at least I wind up, you know, casting a female. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So, so I've got so – well, right, but I can have her perspective in there. Um, and if anybody comes at me and, oh, he wrote her, so blah, 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 I go, well, you know, we deferred to um, Tina or Monique or whoever on the yeah. – when we shot it. For a comic book artist, you're a comic book writer and then an artist and a, um, if nobody on the team is a woman, I just wonder how uh, people react. Yeah, I see what like, saying, yeah. I'm not trying to stir a pot. I'm wondering if it's already been stirred, is my question. Yeah, fair. <laughs> no, fair. Yeah, no pushback. No pushback so far. No, no. And we did, okay. um, we did get uh, Camila de Erico to draw one of our covers. Um, you know, so we did have a female presence on the team. And, um, you know, Camila is a world famous pop surrealist. And she was amazing mm. to work with. She did, she did a cover for us for our issue three. And that went fantastically okay. well. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I haven't had any pushback on it, uh, on that so far, no. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, so far it's just me, you know, it's me and Chris Manolio and Dave Lancier are, are the team for the book. And we're just trying to tell a really good story. That's our perspective. We have a female lead. We just want to, we just want to take her and tell her a really great story. And that's, that's our heart. Um, I hope that people see see our heart when they read it, and they don't try to read any type of agenda other than that. And, you know, I think um, mm -hmm. the story of, of Bloodworth is, you mm -hmm. know, there's a lot, the undercurrent of the story, you know, she's trying to solve a mystery, but a lot of it has to do with a family drama. Her father's died, her, her sister's an addict, and she's really trying to hold things together. And the crux of the story is, you know, can she resolve her you know, kind of like conflict and issues that she's had with her father who's now gone and she can't talk to anymore. Can she let that go? Is there, can there be some, you know, a moment of forgiveness 
in the mid- middle of this mess where she's trying to solve this mystery and she's being accused of crimes and all this sort of thing. Uh, you know, so I think I hope people just look at look at the story and see this struggling person trying to make it in, in the world and trying mm-hmm. to make you know life right for her and her family. That's what I hope they see when they read it, and um, mm-hmm. I, I can't see why anybody would push back on that. But you know, you never know. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> well, I, I think know. I think you know one of the things is like what you didn't mention. So I think they put you a step ahead a lot. Is she's not uh, this 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 who's looking for love? I don't know how many movie descriptions I read last week or whatever. I was trying to watch, you know, some female-led stuff for reviewing. And, I'm, and every one of them, no matter what the, the female character was doing, the last thing of it was, who's looking for love? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she's an FBI agent chasing werewolves. Who's looking for love in the big city? I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, here's. Here's a memo. Not all women are always looking for love. Okay. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, like the ro- romance, you know, in the story doesn't have to be a passionate love, sexual romance. You know, you can have like, a, you right. know, think about like if you think Indiana Jones movies, it's like, you know, there's him and a the girl in the first two, but then in the third movie, I mean, there's a girl, but she's really tertiary. It's about him and the dad. It's a, the, right. yeah. so the romance of that movie is, can he and his dad get along? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I love love stories, but I, I also love like non-sexual romances like that. You know, like um, yeah. a show, there's a show called The Killing that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. It's a male and female lead. And it was like, really, they, they weren't like interested in that in each other romantically, but they were just like really good buddies. And yeah. really, you know, but there was still a really weird and interesting dynamic caused mm-hmm. by the fact that they were a man and a woman, but they weren't romantically linked. And like, I just really got into that. So yeah, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's different. There's a, so that was a friendship romance. Just gotta keep our story straight, Lynn. No one's gotta know what we did. Who are you? I'm Holder from County. Are you Linda? Yeah, I'm Linda. School kids on a field trip this morning found this. Your daughter have a history of running away, Mrs. Larson. Rosie? No. K9 picked up a scent. Is it my daughter? You can't be here, Mr. Larson. No, no! That case you were working on a couple years ago, the hooker got her head almost cut off. Caught a body this morning. If you're looking for a connection, there's none. We got the killer. Put him away. End of story. What is this place? Linda, put the gun down. Please, Holder, you don't need to be here. can happen on this land. Put the gun down! Drop your weapon! Drop your weapon! I think she met someone. Someone she couldn't tell anyone about. Do you think we're chasing the wrong guy? Never gonna get him, are we? It's like he's on a crusade. Go. These kids are in so much pain. Is it me you're trying to save or yourself? You know, in right. opposite sex, opposite sex friendship romance, and you know, so yeah, when you kind of turn, like you said earlier, turn things on its head. You know, I want to turn it on its head. You know, I, I, my my story, the romance in my story of Bloodworth, 
is her trying to re- resolve her relationship with her father, who is, who's not even mm-hmm. there. You know, she's got to grapple with the memories of him, and that, that's the romance of the story. Uh, you know, so I really get into, you know, turning it on its head and making the romance a little different, you know? So, I like that. I, really, I love yeah. that. So she's looking for love, but it's not that love, you know? And again, right. looking for love every day. It's not, <laughs> not, it's not a sexual love necessarily, you know? We, we want fulfillment, you know, we want friendship. We want to get along with our family. Right. We're all looking for love, but it's, it's really more complicated most of the time than just trying to find a mate or a partner. Yeah, you know. Well, yeah, and that's almost like the male version of what the female wants, in my opinion. And, you know, I oftentimes, mm-hmm. I had some criticism of uh, the film that just won the Academy Award, and I can't, Shape of Water. So, mm-hmm. I don't know if you both have seen Shape of Water, but there are several things where not. the lead... Okay, so there's several scenes where the lead is masturbating. And I, the first time I saw the film, I was like, are they kidding me with this? And then the second time I watched the screener with a girlfriend of mine, we look at each other and like, this is so male version of what he thinks a female does. There's no woman that masturbates like that. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, that, that's a pretty broad statement, but okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay Not having seen the film, I can't really argue it. Right. You can't, but if you see the film, now, now when you do see it, you're going to laugh because my voice will be in your head saying this. And I think in Hollywood mm-hmm. for so many years, it's been that thing. That's obviously changing now because actresses are finally speaking out against this stuff, which needed to happen, obviously. But for the longest time, that was just sort of, you just sort of accepted it. You know what I'm saying? Are we get, of these uh, stories were told from that perspective. Are we getting political now? <laughs> no, I'm totally not. <laughs> Or, or well, is this just socially aware? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's socially aware. Yeah, I mean, socially aware. Day, I, I, yeah. day, I have to answer to my wife on how I, I'm um, depicting these women in the story. So I have that filter, you know. Ask your wife <laughs> what she thinks. She'll probably agree with me. She'll probably go like, "Yeah, that's totally." Because you look at this stuff and you think oh, yourself, "That oh, yeah. is the male idea of how a female you. thinks. It's not yeah, really how a female thinks." Stuff, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The male idea of how. <laughs> Uh, women are supposed to be being depicted in films, absolutely. You know, I mean, with the blood, yeah. with Bloodworth, it's like, she doesn't have my wife's personality at all. It's like, Bloodworth's very pleasant, and I like very pleasant. But the yeah. way she filters the world and sees the world as a woman is very much based on my experience of knowing my wife. Um, you know, so she mm. is, in, a, in that way, based on, on my wife. So I have a very strong female perspective right next to me that, which is I can, great. Uh, that I, I can use and reference and then, you know, right. she reads it and then I, I watch her face while she reads it, <laughs> you know, that what? kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's always the scariest thing when you're in the room and you're like, so like you, you want to let the other person read it. And you, well, you can't yeah. let them know you're really looking because why yeah. learn faces not to make when they're reading your stuff? Yeah, um, she, right? she hates that when I do that. <laughs> but you're like, they're making mental notes of like, what page is she on? Because I need to ask her about this later. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. But here's the thing. At least you guys are doing that. You want the female perspective of whether it's accurate or not. And for a long time Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, that was never the case. Nobody even considered that that was maybe something they should do. You know what I'm saying? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, my favorite thing is to watch. Yeah, you watch old shows from the 60s where they were trying to be progressive. Yeah, exactly. And like their idea of being progressive is, you know. She's wearing jeans in the kitchen. She's, yeah. You know. <laughs> Getting there, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Trying. 
know. It it was it's just a it's a it's it's a really slow wheel that turns, you know. Yeah, um, change is slow. Change is slow, but it must come. Um yep. <laughs> We know the people that are listening are gonna be interested in, you know, getting started on their own in comics. What advice would you have? I feel like we kind of covered this a bit too. Like when, you know, you were telling us how you got started, but what advice would you have for somebody who, who's just thinking about getting started in this? Um, well, my advice, especially for writers is you got to self publish, um, something. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's the same for artists too, I suppose. I mean, artists can get hired based on portfolio, you know, but, um, writers, especially it's really important to self publish. And that's kind of really been the thing for, Ever as far, as far as like independent comics uh, existing, is that you have to self-publish first. Um, you have to mm-hmm. prove, you know, because like comic publishers will not read scripts. Okay, you can't write a, a script of your original character or one of their characters and send it to them and say, "Hey, read my script and see if you want to hire me." They will not. That is not a thing. That is absolutely not. <laughs> a thing. You have to have an artist on board, and you have to have pages. You know, try to like do do a full issue something you know i mean when i was doing it like you could send 10 pages when i was first doing it, you could send 10 pages pitch and get you know that's what we that's what we had for moriarty um mm-hmm. actually I'm so rusty now my memory i'm trying to remember if we i think we yeah no that's right we only had our, our pitch book that I, that's what i sent eric Stevenson okay was a pitch book that had 10 pages um we didn't have the full issue yet and like yeah you could get a uh, you could get a, a contract based on that back then and I think now you, you'd have to be a little more of a name to um, mm-hmm. be able to get a deal based on just a few pages. So I say do at least one right. issue. If you're going to do a, a, like a four-issue miniseries um, and you want to get like, you know, Image or Dark Horse or somebody to publish it, um, I mean, really the best advice and the hardest thing in the world is just to do the whole thing. Finish it. Mm-hmm. And then, because, you know, because there's a lot of excuses publishers will give you for not publishing the material. The only mm-hmm. one I really, and this is sounds ridiculous, but the only excuse I want to hear when somebody doesn't want to publish material is, I don't like it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. no, I'm like, you know what? I did everything else. <laughs> they just right. didn't sign the material to the material and that's fine. But like, you know, I was professional and I did everything I was supposed to do and they just didn't like the material and that's fine because that's just their taste and whatever. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, do whatever you need to do, Kickstarter, whatever. Maybe get, you know, get your book done, and then and then send it out. You know, it's um, go to conventions, you know, show pages, whatever. You know, I there was a um, there was a like there was a networking group here in town called Comic Book Sunday, and they just after ten years they just wrapped and had their last meeting this past weekend. And Ben Jackendoff was the guy that uh, was the head of that group, and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was going to that for years, and like when I was developing Moriarty, I would go with whatever new pages I had, and I would go to that group and show people my new pages and get feedback on the color and and layout and stuff like that. And you know, so like I had a um, I had a group of people I could go to, and additionally, I would go to the conventions and show my stuff to editors and get feedback from them. You know, it was a very long, slow process. So as the book was developing, I was constantly getting feedback. Um, you know, so you got to do that. You got to do that work. You know, start generating pages. As you're generating the pages, get feedback, make adjustments if you need, um, get something done, and then get it into the publisher's hands. And these days, I mean, I don't know, you know, going to shows is the best thing. 
Now, um, a lot of these guys, a lot of these, these uh, publishers have uh, submission guidelines online, and, you know, you can go through those. I don't know how effective they are these days, you know. It's getting harder mm-hmm. and harder to get published by an independent publisher. You know, they really mainly want to work with people that have already have track records with Marvel and DC. Wow. So it's really difficult. But, um, you know, uh, target some of the smaller publishers maybe. You know, some some of these there's some of these presses that will um, they can they can get your books into some into stores nationwide that like, you have you have to pay for the printing run up front. But you right. know, like I know guys that have done I have a couple of guys that I'm friends with that um, you know that published with one of these with one of these companies and they did a Kickstarter and raised three thousand dollars whatever got their print run money and then they got their book in the shops. You know, you got you, you got to do that sometimes. You know. So, yeah, I, I guess that's a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people can listen to it back again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Transcribe it and memorize every word of what I just said. Just call your goal. Um, I was always telling Anthony that when Anthony and I were working on profit and then working on Moriarty together, I'd, I'd, say, I'd always say to him, "My words are gold, Anthony. Just make sure you leave room for my words because they're gold." I'm not gonna edit them for you. <laughs> you know? Gold, you're gold. I would think it's to, uh, to an artist's benefit to find a good writer to partner with because, you know, an artist can create these mm-hmm. great drawings and characters, but without a script, what do you do? You know, I would think, is, right. so, is there any way to, to um, hook up with artists if you're a writer in this genre? Is there a place where you can sort of network and meet um, somebody that you can partner with to create your first book or, or does that that not exist, a platform for that not exist? Um, just all, all the things I was just talking about, really, like going to conventions okay. and like, you know, going okay. to Artist Alley. I mean, it used to be like 10 years ago, people would say, go to DeviantArt and, and uh, you know, email people and stuff. But I, I found like, I, I got very little response. Like, when you find really? an artist okay. online that you like, they almost like 1% of the time return your emails. Uh, so I don't... Hmm. I don't find that to be uh, effective. You have to go, you no. have to meet them. So okay. go to cons, you know, go to, just go to a comic shop. Go to your local comic shop and hang out because, I mean, and that's easy for us because we live in Los Angeles and there's a lot, a lot of professionals live here in town. Uh, so, yeah. you know, if you're, um, you know, in, in middle America, I don't know how many pros you're going to meet in the comic shop, but um, just go to the comic shop and chat up the owner because the owners of your comic shops know all about the business. They know all about diamond and distribution and what titles are being right, put right. out. Da, da, da. You can learn a lot about the business just talking to your shop owner. And I did that a lot when I was first, my first few years getting into the business. I would just go hang out. Okay. House of Secrets in Burbank, uh, you know, and yeah. last off on the street here now in North Hollywood. I go hang out and just talk to the folks that are working there, all the, you know, and get, get lots, ask lots of questions, get lots of information. That's a good way to do it. Um, you know, often shop owners know artists because artists will come in and show shop owners their portfolios and stuff, you know. Right. Um, so you, you can meet people through your shop owners, you know. Okay. But and yeah, that's one of the ways. groups go to conventions, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the ways that, like, comics, too, are, are um, still ahead of movies where, like, you know, there used to be the local video store. Yeah. That, you know, even before Blockbuster, so, you know, there's the mom and pop video store where they had a catalog of movies. Right. And you can literally visit, you know, a bunch of them and sell them your, your content. Oh, Back yeah. when it was like on VHS, yeah. you could walk in and say, hey, do you want to rent my video? And, you, you know, it was cheaper than anybody else's. So if they had shelf space, they'd take it, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And we, now, we did Bikini Hotel that way. Yeah. You know, and now wow. it's, uh, 
you know, the sh the, those stores are all gone. And it's all about digital content, and there's no face-to-face -face anymore. And I think, you, you know, the independents definitely lose something when you lose that face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's why conventions are so important for the filmmakers. And, and, and you know, for, for you, you're saying um, go to the conflict. I'm in North Carolina right now. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in New York, you know, it was, it was like you said, it's easy. You can find a comic book store. You can find a – even, even – um, you know, if I went to New York now, you could probably still find some actual video stores with physical content because <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's so many different kinds of shops. But North Carolina, if you're not in Asheville, there's nothing interesting going on. <laughs> you know, it's like um, – and being, being from New York and then I lived in, in Florida and now I'm here, it's like uh, the, the East Coast really has just got the top and the bottom. Everything in the middle kind of slows down. Uh, wow. So I can just imagine what – the mid, you know, what middle America is like, like you said. Um, but I guess with the cons there, they're probably less crowded. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I know. Yeah. I mean, I know Texas has a lot of great small cons from what I hear. I, I know I have friends that are artists that live in Texas and there's a lot of like smaller cons in Texas that are apparently are really terrific, you know, um, you know, yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's these franchise shows, um, that go all over the country. And yeah. It, I mean, you can find a con anywhere, and and hey, you know what? If you can scrape together together a little money and fly out here to WonderCon or something, you know, uh, right? Yeah. That trip and check out check out one of the big shows, and you know, um, if you're if you're serious, you know, go mm -hmm. ahead and do that. So yeah, the, uh, there's a uh, Heroes Con, right? Is that in North Carolina? Um, Heroes Con. Is that in Charlotte? Okay, yeah, because like, I did I did Heroes Con like back in 2011. Um, so I, okay. I, I'm pretty sure it was, was yeah, I just drawing a blank is been a few years, but yeah, I mean yeah, like, Heroes Con is a right. well-respected show right, right there where you are. So, um, you know, there's that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think no matter where you live in the country, you can probably find a convention that's um, closer mm -hmm. to you than not. I mean, even if it's a two or three hour drive. So that's probably some good advice. That's solid. Yeah. Yeah, well, we we get a lot of um, you know, more we get like crossover conventions too, where like um, right, right, you know, comic movie and you know, so mm -hmm. if you're into sci-fi and horror, you're okay because they'll they'll wrap that into comic books a lot or vice versa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. but like you know, some states get just Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Like you can have a convention, you know, if you're in a big enough city, you can have a convention around one character and people will show up. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah. That would be the place and, to go then. I'd true. say if you're in a state that only has a Doctor Who convention, go to the Doctor Who convention, you know? Right, yeah. Doctor Who right. comics, the publisher, the publisher, you know, Titan might be there. You could talk to a Titan publisher uh, editor or something, you know? Please, mm -hmm. you know try, give it a try. It's all about networking. You know? mm -hmm. So where Absolutely. can we buy your comic books? I know um, Image does mainly your distribution. What's the best place for somebody to go if they want to pick up some of your books? Well, um, Really, um, you know, to quote the famous tagline, wherever fine books are sold. But, um, yeah, Amazon, you okay. can get physical copies at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can go into Barnes & Noble. Um, it's not on the shelf. You can ask them to order it for you, and they will get it in to the store for you. Or you can order it straight from their website, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, you can also, Comixology is like the quickest, easiest. Um, also, Amazon Kindle. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we're on iTunes Books iTunes books as well. So, uh, yeah, digitally is the, the quickest, easiest, you know. So, like, if you're on Comixology, everything's there. 
So um, my image books and, and also my danger cat books are, are there.